Everyone, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word, which is good, true, and beautiful. And we ask that you would give us hearts willing to receive it and ready to believe it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the point of worry? What's the point? Why worry? An essay in the online magazine called Psychology Today describes worry in this way. Worry is insidious and almost always useless. It can be defined as to give way to unease, to allow one's mind to dwell on difficulty or troubles. The key to understanding worry is that it is allowing your mind to fixate on problems. There is not one solution that worry provides. This same article cites various scientific research that has proven that worry makes things worse and that worry does absolutely nothing to make things better. Probably most people would agree that there's really no point in worrying. 2,000 years ago, Jesus told his followers, preaching this famous Sermon on the Mount, do not worry about your life. Do not worry about your life. Tomorrow will worry for itself. It's good for us to hear that Jesus does not want us to worry. Jesus doesn't want us to worry. Worry is pointless, and Jesus says, don't worry. But Jesus doesn't only tell us not to worry. He doesn't simply say, don't worry. He gives us reasons why we should not worry. There are strong and sturdy reasons why, as followers of Jesus Christ, we should not worry. And so we have the opportunity to consider those reasons this morning. But before we do, we have to make a point of clarification, because although many people would probably consider these words some of the most beautiful and comforting words in all of the Bible, they have not been without their naysayers. Some people don't think what Jesus says here is is worth listening to, think this is bad advice. One example is the late Christopher Hitchens, who, delivering a screed at an event called Freedom Fest, described Jesus' teaching in this fashion. And it's not very pleasant, but this is what he thought. He said, take no thought for the morrow, the central doctrine of Jesus, no investment, no thrift. You should just abandon your children. Just follow me. A ridiculous and immoral proposition. We have to be clear that this is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying you shouldn't care about your children. Jesus is not saying you shouldn't care about your career. You shouldn't care about taking care of your kids, managing a household, etc., etc. Jesus is not saying don't care about these things or that these things aren't valuable and important. Jesus is saying simply that we should not be loaded down by these cares. We should not be overwhelmed by our concerns. Matthew Henry, the Bible commentator, he clarifies this for us very helpfully. He says this, There is a thought or care concerning the things of this life, which is not only lawful, but duty. But the thought or care here forbidden, that in our text this morning, is a disquieting, tormenting thought, which disturbs our joy 
in God, which breaks the sleep and hinders our enjoyment of ourselves, of our friends, and what God has given us. His interpretation, his commentary, is confirmed by the original Greek. So in the ESV, which we use for the Pew Bible, the word is translated as to be anxious, do not be anxious. It's translated in the NIV as to worry. It's translated in the King James Version, the version Christopher Hitchens was referring to, as take no thought for the morrow, take no thought. But the Greek word more literally means think earnestly about meditate upon, scan minutely. Jesus tells us this morning, do not meditate upon and be overwhelmed by, captured by, and consequently shipwrecked by your cares and concerns. Do not worry. So we come to our text. Starting in verse 25, we read, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus starts with simple command. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. And then he asks what we would probably consider a softball question. Isn't life more than food or the clothes more than or the body more than clothes. But this is a question that we especially need to hear today because media is saturated with messages about food. So I did an experiment this week. I was hoping it would work out better for the purpose of what I'm trying to illustrate, but I watched TV and I kept track of the content of the commercials during a given hour of, of television. And I was, I was thinking, oh yeah, it's totally going to be like 80% food, uh, and the math doesn't even make sense. 80% food, 80% clothes. Like, it's just going to be all about these things. Uh, there was a few ads related to your body, um, so how you can look better. So kind of tangentially related to clothing, perhaps. Uh, more of the commercials had to do with food, but it still wasn't like an overwhelming majority of the commercials. There's a lot of commercials about a lot of different things. And so I was disappointed because I was hoping to come here this morning and be like, did you know that all that people think about is food and clothes? That's all they think about. I, I tracked it. 90% of commercials have to do with food or clothes. I don't have anything like that to report. But what I do have to report, and what is absolutely true, is that we think an awful lot about food and clothes. Maybe not in commercials, but go online. People are thinking about, what can I wear? How can I look better? How does what I wear tie into who I am? What next meal? So Burger King, for, for example, they have come up with a very catchy jingle to, to entice you to, to go to their establishment and try the new combo meal. And just, it'll make you so happy and you won't believe it. We're saturated with messages about food and clothes. And that makes sense because we need food and clothes. Jesus isn't pointing out food and clothes because they're things we might think about sometimes, but they are the very lifeblood of our existence. We need to eat and we need to be clothed. These are areas of special concern for us as human beings because without one or the other or both, we perish. We need these things. But Jesus wants to give us a new perspective on these things. Jesus wants us not to think of these things as ultimate. These are important things, but they are not ultimate things. 
Maybe this morning you just need to know the simple truth that your life is about more than what you eat. Your life is about more than what you consume or what you possess. The value of your life cannot be reduced to any of these things. Your life far exceeds these things in value. That's exactly what Jesus goes on to tell us. And this is the first insight that we have for fighting against worry, for avoiding worry. The first insight is don't worry, consider creation. Don't worry, consider creation. In verse 26, we read, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus provides two everyday examples of how God cares for his creation. God cares for his creation. The birds, the lilies, these are not things that we have to work tremendously hard to catch a glimpse of. The disciples, when Jesus said, consider the lilies, they might have just looked down and considered the lilies. Consider the birds. There might have been a flock overhead of birds. We don't have to go too far to see how much God cares for the things that he has made, but how easy it is for us to just let them pass us by. When was the last time you stopped and considered these things? When was the last time You went outside, went for a walk, and instead of just going for the walk and thinking, I got to do my walk today, when was the last time you stopped and looked at the way that the flowers are growing, the way that the plants are growing, the way that the birds are chirping and they get everything that they need because God cares for what he has made. God cares for what he has made. Something else to consider about birds and lilies, as far as I know, they can't worry. They, they just are unable to worry. They do not have the capacity to waste a single moment of the very short time that they have on worry. And so we might think, well, if, if they're not worrying, how come they're being fed? But of course we wouldn't think that. That makes no sense. But that's often how we think about worry. We act out worry like it's going to do something for us. And so Jesus makes this very funny point. He says, which one of you can add a single hour to his span of life by worry? And this is a very, very interesting verse because it's ambiguous exactly what the original Greek means. So some translations translate this as, which one of you can add a single cubit to his height by worrying? The Greek is unclear. It means one of two things can add a cubit to his height by worrying or an hour to his life by worrying. But those two things, you'll notice, mean the same thing, which is that worry is pointless and it's absurd for us to think 
it's going to accomplish anything. You could think of many more examples. Which one of you could shapeshift into a giraffe by stretching upward vigorously enough? Which of you could transform into a bird by flapping your arms violently? Worry adds nothing to your life. Worry does not add value to your life. Worry does not solve the problems that we all are facing. Worry only makes them worse. But Jesus doesn't just want us to think, oh yeah, worry is pointless. He wants us to understand why it's pointless. It's pointless because God, who cares for birds, who cares for lilies, will he not care for us, his image bearers? If God takes care of all these things, won't he take care of us who alone are made in his image? Of course he will. God loves us more than we can understand. God cares for us more than we can comprehend. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? This is a traditional mode of argumentation in, in Jewish literature, ancient Jewish literature, called from the lesser to the greater. Jesus would have us consider the lesser things of creation, the birds and the lilies. And from our consideration of those things and the way that God so evidently cares for these, we are to conclude, so too, he cares for us. Consider the way that God cares for his creation. O oh, you, O oh, me, of little faith. Jesus, in other words, is giving us perspective. He's giving us an interpretation of reality, the true interpretation of reality. Reality is not a mechanical, purely natural phenomenon. Reality, nature, is sustained and cared for by God. That is crucial perspective for us to have. That changes the way we relate to other things. We need this heavenly perspective. We need to understand God cares for us. I, I don't think you need me to tell you how important perspective is in, in other areas of life. I was struggling to come up with a sermon illustration about perspective, and yesterday my mom thought of one, which was, is suitably embarrassing, so I'll share it. Uh, when, I, when, when, I was, when I was eight, eight or nine, we took a trip to Disney World, and my, most of my memories from this trip are nightmarish. Uh, so we went on Thunder Mountain. I remember Thunder Mountain, and this is, this is the illustration. Uh, I, they were telling me, oh, it'll be fine. It's fun. It's a roller coaster. There are twists and turns. Uh, and then we get on the roller coaster, and like 30 seconds into the ride, I start screaming my head off. It was terrifying. And next to me, my mom was laughing her head off. So she thought this was very funny that I was in such anguish, like every good mother. Uh, and she, she loved it. She had, a, she had a blast. And then after we got off the ride, I was like, I'm never, never doing this again. I'm never doing Thunder Mountain again. And I don't think I, have I done? I haven't done Thunder Mountain, no. So that was my one experience with Thunder Mountain. I was true to my word. Uh, the point is that my mom had been on the ride before. My mom knew that this was a roller coaster and that everything was going to be 
fine. I couldn't conceive of this. I didn't have this perspective. This was my first experience on the roller coaster, and it was just horrifying. I hated it. Um, but God knows what we need. And, and when we have that perspective, when we understand that God is taking care of us through the twists and turns of, of life, that helps us with worry. God is taking care of me through all the twists and turns. It's simply a matter of us asking for the faith to believe that. Ask, us asking God's help. God, help us this morning to believe that you care for us. Help us to stop and consider the way in which you love us. So first, in our fight against worry, we're to consider creation. Consider the way God cares for it. But second, Jesus tells us in the fight against worry, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Starting in verse 31, we read, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Your heavenly Father cares for you. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The commentator R.T. France sums up this portion of Jesus' teaching in this way. Jesus says, put first things first. Put first things first, which is another way of saying, put God first. Put God first. Jesus knows what we need. We need food and clothes. These are very important things, but they are not ultimate things. The ultimate things are God himself, his eternal, incorruptible, unfading kingdom. This explains why throughout the New Testament, in light of Jesus' coming, in light of his life, his work, his death and resurrection, in light of what all of that revealed, this is why all the New Testament writers, when they're counseling people on how to fight sin, how, how to be sanctified, they, they tell them, do not set your mind on earthly things, but on heavenly things. Again, this heavenly perspective. Seek first the kingdom of God. What does this mean, seek first the kingdom of God? Well, it means asking God how we can please him in whatever station he's put us in. God, today, how can I put your kingdom first? What am I putting in my life that's clouding my vision of what you've revealed? What's distracting me from my true purpose, which, as the Westminster Confession tells us, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We need a heavenly perspective. We need to know that the things of this world, food, clothes, everything else, as good and as important as they are, they are not eternal. They will not last forever. What will last forever is God's kingdom, world without 
end. I discovered recently that the late 90s, 1999, I think, sci-fi film The Matrix has been the subject of a bunch of theological think pieces, which I, I really didn't know. I saw it, the movie so long ago, and I, I remember not really liking it that much, but uh, there are all of these pieces on the internet. There's one in Christianity Today called Finding God in the Matrix. There's one on a blog called Think Christian called Why the Matrix Still Matters. And you could go online and say, The Matrix, Christian movie. No, we, I mean, you wouldn't think of The Matrix as a Christian movie, and rightfully so. But there are Christian themes. They're playing on these Christian themes. One of the most significant scenes in the film takes place between this mysterious figure named Morpheus and the protagonist of our film named Neo. Neo is brought to Morpheus by another shady figure named Trinity. And that's because Morpheus has come to understand that Neo suspects that there might be more to his life than the everyday grind, going to work, partying, etc. There might be more. Neo has, has gotten a glimpse of this, and he's suspicious that the way that he's been seeing the world up to that point has been a facade. It's not been true to reality. And Morpheus basically tells him, Neo, you're correct. And Morpheus describes what Neo has become aware of as the Matrix. And Morpheus describes the Matrix in this really powerful way. He says the Matrix is the world that's been pulled over your eyes to keep you from the truth. The world that's been pulled over your eyes to keep you from the truth. Now, speaking of the theological reflection on this movie, a lot of people have criticized the film because they say it, it draws this distinction between the world, the physical that we inhabit, and some other dimension, which is good. The world we inhabit is bad. That other world, good. As Christians, we know that that's not totally accurate. God loves the world. God has given us gifts in this world. God has given us bodies. This is not an altogether bad world that we should just dismiss or hate. This is the Gnostic heresy, which a lot of people think The Matrix is a Gnostic film. The Gnostics, an early sect, uh, cult, thought that Jesus came to basically say, this world, everything in it, is just hopeless and bad and gross. And there's a heavenly world that's perfect and pure and good. But that's not the full picture. Jesus came into the world. Jesus took on flesh to redeem it. So reading The Matrix as a Christian film is maybe, maybe a stretch, but we can see from Morpheus's words a grain of truth, and it relates directly to our text. And it is this. There is more to this life than the things of this world. There is more going on. There is an eternal kingdom that even now God is bringing to fruition. And in the person of Christ, he revealed decisively to us. Jesus came to be the king. There is more to your life, and your life is of so much more value than what you eat, what you wear, and all other concerns. There is a heavenly 
kingdom. Jesus wanted his followers to know this and to be reminded of this and to have this so a part of their being. So with that aim in mind, he taught them the Lord's Prayer. And how does the Lord's Prayer start? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. First things first. Then give us this day our daily bread. Jesus lived out his teaching perfectly. He was perfectly consistent with all the things that he taught. Maybe one way that we can put God's kingdom first, one simple way that we can do that, is to pray the Lord's Prayer when you wake up in the morning, when you're just sitting around, when you're not sure what to do. Why not pray the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give me this day my daily bread. Forgive me my trespasses. We can't perfectly put the kingdom of God first. We don't perfectly put first things first. We fail to put God's will above our own, but there is one who never failed to put God's will above all other competing interests. Jesus Christ perfectly sought the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ never failed to put the will of his Father first. Jesus' commitment to the kingdom of God was challenged at numerous points throughout his ministry. Early on in his ministry, the great foe, Satan, challenged Jesus. When Jesus was hungry, when Jesus was no doubt thinking about daily bread, Satan came to him said, turn, turn these stones into bread. Satan tempted him. First things aren't first, Jesus. Jesus said, God's word comes first. God's will comes first. And Jesus said no to the devil's insinuations. Then towards the end of his ministry, Peter came to Jesus. After Jesus had said that he would be put to death at the hands of sinners, Peter came to him and said, that's not going to happen, Jesus. You're not going to die. Don't, don't be silly. And, and Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. You are putting the things of man over and against the things of God. Jesus' commitment to the kingdom of God was challenged most acutely the night on which he was betrayed. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had more reason than any of us can imagine to put other interests before the kingdom because Jesus knew that soon his commitment to the kingdom would cost him his life and the most painful death. Praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, my father, if it is not possible for this cup, referring to the cup of his death, to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Even at the cost of his life and the most painful, excruciating death, Jesus put the kingdom first. 
In following Jesus, we need to understand that, yes, Jesus is our example. Jesus is our example of how not to worry, of how to trust in our Heavenly Father. But Jesus is also our substitute. He is our example and our substitute. And because he is both, we can entrust ourselves to his care. Jesus always put the kingdom first because of the fact that you and me so often put lesser things first. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life because of our unrighteous lives. Jesus is our great example as we fight against worry, as we seek to put God's kingdom first, because he is the one upon whom we can cast all of our anxieties. In fact, he's the one who bore our greatest concern, who met our greatest need. We need daily bread. We need clothes. But above all these things, we need to be reconciled to God. Jesus concludes his teaching on worry in the following manner. He says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. God cares for you. God knows what you need. And may we heartily declare this morning and ask for the faith to believe it, that sufficient and loving is our God to provide all our needs, who has already in his son given us more than we could ever imagine. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us everything we need. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, an excruciating death for our sins, to set us free, to forgive us. Father, there is much in this world that we can be concerned about. There is much in this world that would divert our attention from you. There is much in our own hearts that would draw us away from your purposes. Father, we ask that however difficult and long the journey, that you would sustain us, that you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, and that we would thereby find rest for our souls, taking upon ourselves the burden and yoke of him whose burden is easy and light. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, would you all please stand for our closing hymn, which is All Creatures of Our God and King. We're going to be singing three verses, All Creatures of Our God.